0: All right, we're going to do something today I've never had us do before. No, I'm not going to try to glue together two sticks. But what I would like you to do is stand where you are, and we are going to a cappella sing the first verse of Amazing Grace, and I insist on it being a cappella. All right, ready? Ready? Beautiful, beautiful. You guys could be a great psalm singer, church. Go ahead and sit down. Physical blindness and physical sight is a cherished, long-standing metaphor for spiritual blindness and spiritual sight. So much so that, in the words we just sang, we can all confess that at one point we were all blind. But now we see. This passage is beautiful. The story of Bartimaeus, uh, Charles Spurgeon over the course of his ministry went back to this passage eight times. He loved this passage. Many people love this passage. It's beautiful. It shows us what discipleship looks like in action. This passage has a great deal of irony, does it not, that It's coming at the tail end of chapter 10 where we've seen a number of people ask questions of Jesus. We've seen a rich young man want to be a disciple, supposedly. And here we have a a middle-aged blind man who's impoverished. He has nothing. And he responds more quickly than the most socially well-positioned people. And he has a level of theological and biblical perception, though he's blind, that exceeds that of the disciples who have been with him for three years. He really is an awesome example for us. This entire passage presents to us discipleship. We've been talking the many, the last several weeks about the issue of discipleship because from Mark chapter 8 through the end of chapter 10, Jesus is really drilling home what does it mean to be a disciple? And he drives home the point repeatedly that if you're going to be my disciple, you must be willing to sacrifice everything. There can be no obstacle. There can be no fence between me and you. I must come first. And so this passage gives us several principles of discipleship, some of which I hope will comfort you, and some of which I hope will convict you. So I want to set the stage, okay, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. We learned in last week's passage that he was on a mission, that the way he was walking, the way he was carrying himself as he made his way to Jerusalem was so focused, so intense that it was a source of amazement to many of his followers. And so he's following a well-traveled route, a roadway to get to Jerusalem. Okay, And he would not have been alone. People are coming from all over to make it to Jerusalem for the Passover. Jerusalem normally had a population of between 100,000 and 200,000 people. So it was a decent-sized city even back then. But at the Passover, it would swell to approximately 3 million people. So it's worse than D.C. I don't know if you've ever been to D.C. in the morning. I mean, it swells and it's just a nightmare. Okay? So these paths would have been filled with pilgrims. And as Jesus makes his way along the path, the further he goes, the closer he gets to Jerusalem, the greater the commotion. He's picking up steam. People know things are about to happen. And so he finally arrives in the town of Jericho. Now, this town of Jericho is different. Even to this day, the modern day Jericho isn't in the same location as the Jericho of Jesus' day, which wasn't in the same location as the Jericho of the Old Testament. I don't know how they can claim that a city is 9,000 years old when it keeps getting blown up and moved. Okay, But anyway, they do. They claim that it's... So they keep the same name, and so they say you know it's the same city, I guess, even though the Old Testament Jericho was about a mile from this town. But in the days of Mark Anthony, he had given this beautiful location to Cleopatra, because, you know, you know the story. And when Cleopatra and Mark Anthony died, the the surviving victor, Octavius, Augustus Caesar, he gives this to Herod the Great as as a thank you gift for his loyalty. And Herod the Great turned the city of Jericho from some little bumbling backwoods sheep town to a thriving metropolis. He built aqueducts, baths, amphitheater. There was even a coliseum there for games. It's where Herod and his children would winter. So it was a thriving city located about two miles southwest of the old ruins that were the city of Jericho in Joshua's day. And so the route to Jerusalem went straight through this area. And from Jericho, to Jerusalem is about 17 miles of winding road and you gain about 3,500 feet in elevation over those 17 miles. That's a lot of elevation, okay? And so that's why in the Bible you will read someone's going up to Jerusalem or they're going down from Jerusalem to wherever because Jerusalem is on top of a mountain. And so Jesus is making his way And the sight of Jericho is fascinating because it's here, as he's passing through, mission-focused, that he encounters Bartimaeus, as we read here. But if you know this story as it's recorded in the Gospel of Luke, who else does he encounter here? Zacchaeus, a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. It's here that Jesus encounters two people on seeming opposite spectrums, ends of the spectrum, but both of them are marginalized. On the one hand, you have rich man Zacchaeus, who's marginalized and detested precisely because he is one of the enemy. He's a colluder with Rome. He's made his fortune extorting and taking advantage of his fellow Israelites. He's a consummate exploiter. And the people hate him for it. On the other end of the spectrum, you have poor man, destitute man, blind man, who's unclean, therefore, and poverty was a sign of cursedness, in their opinion. And so he's marginalized as a nobody. And Jesus, the true son of David... Comes, And in one encounter, he ministers to and brings salvation to these two marginalized people, signifying his embracement of the entire spectrum of human experience. What's amazing is this is the same town where approximately 1,400 years earlier, his namesake, the first Yeshua, grants salvation to a marginalized Canaanite, prostitute on the eve of his conquest and here on the eve of jesus conquest being the superior yeshua he grants salvation to two jesus does an awesome work and so this text reads in such a way that we are invited to place ourselves into the daily life of this situation. It's business as usual. It's a few days before the start of the Passover week. It's just a few days. It's just a couple days later that he makes his triumphal entry on the first day of the week. And so there would have been teeming numbers of pilgrims. The weather this time of year, over there, it's assuming the weather patterns were the same back then, whatever. Mid-80s. That's pretty toasty, especially when you're sitting out in it all day. It's, it's dusty. Poverty is everywhere. And so beggars are ubiquitous. And there's just beggar on the side of the road. Beggars were treated kind of like they are now. You, you know, don't want to make eye contact. We tend to ignore them. They, they're unsightly. They're kind of embarrassing. They make us feel guilty because we kind of know we should do something for them, but we don't really want to. And it's just this awkward situation even looking at them. And frankly, in the sight of many, maybe though we won't say it, because good Christians don't think such things, but we do, he's kind of expendable. He's a, he's a consummate nobody. And if he dies, who cares? One less eyesore on the side of the street. That's certainly the attitude many of them had. As a beggar, he's used to people sometimes throwing stuff to him as a handout. He's used to some people taunting him as they walk by. Get a job, you lazy bum. He's used to people perhaps stealing from him. He's blind, by the way. you know People think it's a game. Can they get up and steal something from him without him noticing? But mostly, he's used as a beggar to being ignored. And so in verse 46, when it says, and there was a blind man, a blind beggar sitting by the road, we are led to believe that what was going on was just another day in the life of blind Bartimaeus. When he got up that morning, he had no reason to think that this day would be, like, would be different from any other day. He was going about his business, which was trying the only way he could think of to put some food on the table. And I want to stop there because there's perhaps some in this room who are in the same basic predicament as blind Bartimaeus. You're going through, and this is just another day, and you're stuck in your predicament. You're stuck in your circumstance, and you wonder, is the future going to change? Is there any hope? Is there any chance that things will get better? Or maybe some of us in this room are like those teeming masses that would have been walking that Trail, that path, that road, too busy, too tired, too distracted, too overwhelmed to pay attention to or give heed to the people who desperately needed help. Maybe. But Bartimaeus, who's no stranger to the commotion of all the traveling, he hears an unusual degree of buzz. He hears a loud commotion and he wants to know what's going on, so he asks and he's told, Jesus Jesus is coming. And immediately, we informed that he knew something about Jesus. He'd heard the scuttlebutt. He had never met Jesus, but he knew something about him. And so he starts crying out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, what he cries out is astounding for a few reasons. First, he's the first person, the only person in Mark that gets it. That labels him as the son of David. He's the only, he's the second person who gives him a messianic title. Jesus or Peter refers to him as the Christ, but it's blind Bartimaeus who correctly understands that he's the son of David, which is a messianic title that they were expecting. That underscores his legitimacy as the king of Israel, the one who will reign as David's legitimate descendant. But the other thing that's interesting about him calling out to Jesus. Referring to him as the son of David, have mercy on me, was because, some of you may not know this, but the Jews of his day certainly did, David famously didn't like blind people. You can read about it in 2 Samuel 5. He kind of detested blind and lame people. They weren't allowed in the temple area. Subsequent generations took David's personal opinion about blind and lame people, and subsequent generations of Jews excluded them from all social life on the basis of David's perspective. You can read about it. So this man is calling out for mercy to one whom their entire tradition would have told him he had no business expecting mercy from. But he knew that just as we know Jesus was the superior Joshua, he knew that Jesus was the superior David. And he knew that if there was any chance for mercy at all, it was from him. And so he cries out, and he's loud, and he's repetitive. He's making a scene. He's annoying everybody, and they tell him to shut his mouth. Be quiet. Know your place, beggar. Jesus is too important, and you're a nobody. Be quiet. But he just keeps on. Have mercy on me. And then we get to what I would suggest is probably the most important couple of words in the entire passage. In verse 49. So if you have your Bible, underline it. And Jesus stopped. Jesus could have kept on going, but Jesus stopped. He's on a mission. He's focused. And this man has been pleading for who knows how long. And Jesus stops. Jesus is on a rendezvous with destiny. To borrow the slogan of the 101st. A rendezvous with destiny. And yet he stops. Because even though he's a man on a mission, he understands that Bartimaeus is the mission. And he stops. This leads me to discipleship principle number one. Always remember that people are the mission. You are Christ's mission. Do you feel ignored? Do you feel marginalized? Do you feel shut out of the information flow, pushed to the periphery, insignificant, unwanted, unimportant, like you're a hindrance or a nuisance, like no one cares? You are Jesus' mission. You are the reason he came. I had this old salty tenth grade science teacher, and we would, he would, before finals or a big test, you know, he would, just in this snarling tone, you know, he'd say, Don't waste your time praying because God has far more important things to worry about than you. He was a bitter man, his wife had left him and stuff, but there are so many who feel that way. How many of you have a burden and you just, oh, I'm, and for some reason we think that we shouldn't pray because that'll, we don't want to burden the Lord or he's not going to do it. I don't know, for whatever silly reason we tell ourselves, we don't pray. Oh, he won't care anyway. He won't pay me no mind anyway. Jesus stopped. You are His mission. But secondly, as a way of application for us, we're His body. We're His emissaries. We're His ambassadors. How often do we view other people? Let's be honest. This is rhetorical, but be honest in your own heart. How often do we view other people as a nuisance? As a hindrance to getting done the stuff that you need to get done? People are the mission. Do not be like Jacob Marley in a Christmas carol who learns only too late that mankind was his business. How would this affect the way we interact? Who that you interact with on a regular basis desperately needs your attention? Who needs you to stop? and be the body of Christ to them, to be the incarnation of Jesus to them. How would this affect the way we deal with our children? Or for thus those of us who have moved away, how would this affect the way we deal with our parents who just desperately wish we'd give them a call? Our spouses? The person at church who you think is profoundly uncool, is not like you. How would this affect the way we interact as a body if we remember people are the mission? So that's discipleship principle number one. And Jesus does something strange here, though. Jesus does things sometimes, I'm, I'm going to be honest, that make me feel uncomfortable. They kind of challenge the image I have of Jesus. You know, first, first it's how he deals with the Syrophoenician woman back in chapter 7. Okay? I mean, Matthew really paints a harsh picture. Jesus is sitting there. She's crying, and he's ignoring her. I mean, he'd been crying for some time. This man had been crying out for a while, so much so that many people were telling him to be quiet. And when Jesus responds, he doesn't give him, he, he doesn't go up to him. Did you notice that? He summons the man to come to him. This leads me to discipleship principle number two. And that is, persistence is key. Persistence is key. You will find it difficult to be a disciple of Jesus if you do not develop the discipline of persistence. Jesus taught in Luke 18 that persistence is key to the kingdom. He tells the parable of a widow who can't get no justice. And she keeps going and pestering this judge who doesn't fear God or man, he doesn't give a rip. But eventually, he says, oh, she's going to wear me out, and he gives her the justice she needs. And that's the parable, Jesus tells, that we're called to struggle with. Jacob had to wrestle with God all night long to get the blessing. The Syrophoenician woman had to literally beg and weep to get the blessing. Bartimaeus had to cry out and persist through people telling him to shut his mouth. Persistence is vital to the kingdom. We want it quick and easy. I'm going to wager that what I just said, those biblical facts that I just reminded you have probably bothered you. Because we know that God is sovereign and he's good and, and he hears our prayer request before we even uttered it, which is true then why does God so seldom give us what we want the minute we cry out? You and I both know that's the reality of it. Jesus lets us linger. We must persist. As we persist, we are brought to the point where we are cognizant of our utter inability to have what we need on our own. And we are brought to the point where we recognize his soul sufficiency to give whatever it is. Instead, we want Jesus to be like our genie, or at least a butler. I ring my bell, and he shows up and gives me what I want. And the minute he doesn't, we get exasperated. The minute he doesn't, we question whether he's real or whether he's good. And we just give up. Or maybe, maybe we pray for a bit. We pray for a bit. You know, we we really want this person to be changed so they'll stop annoying me. I mean, we, we want them to get right with the Lord. And as soon as we think the correct amount of waiting has happened, we just say, well, I guess God doesn't want to do something. And we give up. Augustine's mom prayed for 20 years for his conversion. And the fruit of her prayers was one of the titans of the church. Persistence is key. So, let me ask you, are you willing to dig down and wrestle or are you going to allow all the obstacles that come your way? Oh, no, you're going to have people tell you to be quiet. Increasingly in this culture, you're going to have people tell you to be quiet. You're going to have employers that want you to compromise your integrity or your faith. You're going to have schoolmates, whether at college or at the, at the, at the high school level, who want you to basically jettison your Christian values and your Christian testimony. It will happen. You'll have family members who want you to push it back on the back burner and not talk that way or not be this way around us. Are you going to let the hindrances and obstacles shut you down? If blind Bartimaeus had given in, there would be no story of blind Bartimaeus in our Bible. Persist. Persistence is key. We give up far too easily. Number three, the third lesson I think this passage teaches us about discipleship is believe in Jesus for the impossible. Jesus calls the man. The man comes up, and Jesus asks him the same sentence The same question, the same grammatical construction that he just asked James and John a few verses earlier in verse 36. What do you want me to do for you? James and John want glory and honor. This man doesn't skip a beat. But before we get to his answer, think about it. Why would Jesus ask him this? Well, he's a beggar. The disciples, they had a benevolence ministry. We know that. It's recorded. They gave money to the poor. How many times do we go up to somebody and we, and we want what we think is our immediate need and we think that it will satisfy us, but really it won't. I believe Jesus was positioning this man to reveal his faith and to challenge him with how much are you willing to ask me for? The man could have said, when Jesus asked, what does he want? He could have said, give me some coin, man. Give me a few denarii. Conjure up a few talents, would you? Give me my sight. He asked Jesus for the impossible. And Jesus says, your faith has made you well. How often do we approach Jesus asking for A few copper, a few denarii, and we don't ask for the impossible. Discipleship of a Christian calls us to ask Jesus for bold things. We're so content peddling around with, with, with nickels and dimes and wanting nothing more, thinking that we can't ask Jesus for more than the simplest things. Challenge Him. Trust him. Ask him for the impossible. Because he's a great God. And then, fourthly, you've got to see Jesus as your all. In verse 52, it's astounding. Jesus lays no obligations on him, he makes no demands of him. Go your way, live your life. Contrast that to the rich young man whom Jesus lays a heavy burden on. Go sell everything, give it to the poor, and then come and follow me. This man, though, he gives no obligations, no demands. But the man freely does everything that Jesus made a demand of of the rich young man. He jumps up, and it, it, the, Mark makes a point of noting that he discards His outer garment, his cloak. This was his most important piece of clothing. It kept him warm at night. During the day, it kept the sun off his skin. You didn't go anywhere without your cloak, your outer garment. You couldn't keep someone's outer garment as a pledge because it was that important. He just discards it. And as soon as he's given an opportunity to exercise his will, he follows Christ. And you know why we know that he followed Christ? Because his name is given. He's the only recipient of a miracle who's named. And it's not just him who's named. His father's named. In other words, when Mark wrote this down, he was saying, you can locate this guy. He was familiar to his first audience. Timaeus, Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus, became a follower of Christ. And he gave Jesus his all. You see, you got to understand all of Jesus' teaching about discipleship leads you to this point of watching Bartimaeus act as an example. Anybody who really, truly comes to Christ has got to come in their sense of desperation. If you come to Jesus thinking that you're basically a good person and all you need help with is just a little bit of straightening up where you've not quite been pristine... If you think, hey, I've had a great life, oh, and and, and going to heaven would just be the cherry on the top of my satisfied, content life. If there is anything that stands behind you thinking that Jesus is your everything, then what Jesus is saying is, you're not really coming to me. The reason he was so hard on the rich young man is precisely because the rich man did not see his desperation. For the rich young man, his money was important enough that the demands of discipleship were too much. And understand this, if Jesus is not your everything, if you don't have a sense of desperation about Jesus, then the most frivolous of excuses will be seen as too precious to you to give up for the sake of Christ. Sports. Oh, I can't follow Jesus, man. Hobbies. Family. A few hours of extra sleep. Oh. I'll tell you what, when I was so frustrated in the Army by these guys, especially in my last assignment, we had special ops guys, Navy SEALs. These guys pride themselves on doing the hardest stuff in the worst possible conditions. I mean, it's a source of chest-thumping pride that I will en- endure the worst. But I tell you what, to get these guys to come to church, oh, man, the stars had to be aligned just right, and, I mean, the weather just had to be, I mean, just perfect. They had to have just the right amount of sleep the night before. Ooh, otherwise, oh, man, it's, I'm so, oh. That's the way we are. About Discipleship. But it all comes down to how desperately do you see your need for Christ? Jesus stopped. You are not unimportant. You're not unimportant to Him. You're not unimportant to us. You are the mission. And you must persist, you've got to wrestle to get the blessing. Don't throw in the towel. Keep on keeping on. Dig down and push forward. And Jesus will prove himself to be the everything you are looking for. Jesus is a great Savior. And the good news is, is you will search in vain for someone in the Bible who genuinely sought Jesus, whom he turned away from. Everyone who calls on the name of Jesus, he saves. So as his people then, everyone who's needing help, let us embody Christ to them and help them and give them our time and our attention Let's pray.